to episode 203 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 7th of November 2022. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. Howdy. Graham. Hello. And Will. Hello. So later on, we'll have an interview with Ken Van Dyne, live from the Ubuntu Summit, where Graham is. But first, let's do some discoveries. Graham, Wonder Shaper. Yeah, so this is one of those things that has been around for a while, and I can't believe it's taken me so long to discover my router at home, it's a good router, but it doesn't have any um, quality of service provisioning. So I can't prioritize video chats, for example, or deprioritize Netflix, um, which is important when you don't have much bandwidth and you're working from home and the kids get back home. But before I talk about Wonder Shaper directly, there's a thing in the Linux kernel that I didn't really know about called Linux traffic control. And this basically allows you to shape network traffic as it goes through the kernel in it in from your Ethernet devices and into anywhere else on your network. You can connect with Linux traffic control with a command called TC, and it's a very powerful command. It's a bit like um, using IP tables in the past. And Wondershaper is a bit like a command line firewall front end to the TC command, but for traffic shaping. It basically allows you to construct really simple commands to limit or in some way shape the network traffic across your network. So I'll give a very simple example. You could do Wondershaper, the name of the device, the download speed, the upload speed, and it'll fix the bandwidth on that network device. And if you happen to be using, like I am, a Raspberry Pi for like streaming video to other people in the house or even for doing some kind of routing stuff, it adds this kind of QoS capabilities to your network. And you can do it on your machine or other people's machines if you have access to it. And it's really simple and it works really quickly. If you've got an important meeting you have with some to have with someone, um, it lets you take control of the, your network. Surely you've used this phone in. No, actually, fully enough, because the routers are generally like Cisco or the likes of that and a lot of the client sites. So no. And I remember I did actually look into it one time for a test network. And I just do not like traffic shaping. There's two ways to do it, if I can remember. It's like peak and max and average bandwidth. And there's one where you do percentage-based one. And I, I don't know, it never agreed with my head. And that probably says more about me trying to understand it than anything else, to be quite honest. But uh, I've generally been massively lazy at home and just gone, oh, it's fine. Yeah, this was brought on by a real need to get yeah. proper, proper <laughs> two-way communication with somebody. And what's the great thing? I could I could chart the bandwidth on the on that device, and it was streaming to the kids, and I could see it just drop to. It's just the at the simplest. It's just the input and output, you know, bits per second that you want to allow. Yeah, I think I'm probably a bit spoiled because, like in a lot of enterprise stuff, you'll have like the switch will you know mm. have a lot of VLANs for like voice traffic or whatever, and that's generally where I've done stuff. So. I've been thankful to be able to sweep that far away into the network realm. It's interesting how many features uh, that software companies sell, such as traffic shapers, are all just native inside Linux, inside the kernel. And I would imagine the vast majority of these things that people pay lots of money for are just a good skin over the top of the Linux kernel. Um, I didn't know that this existed. I didn't know you could do traffic shaping. I, I was aware of some sort of queuing systems that they've got in there for routing, which are very cool. But this is, this is amazing. You could, you could build an entire product off of this and sell it to people, and uh, you, you get this really great software for nothing. The second you said TC, I remember that. 
but I don't know what I use it for. And I honestly, I'm struggling to remember it. I think it was probably very traumatic. Wonder Shaper <laughs> is really just a bash script. So you can see what it's doing with TC if you really wanted to know. Will, USB IP. Another feature of the kernel that I'd long forgotten about is USB IP. Years ago, I needed to get access to a USB device. I think it was a USB camera across a, a very long distance. And I tried long USB cables and they just don't work very reliably. You know, devices drop off and, and don't really come back again in the right manner. And uh, it was just very, very unreliable. And I discovered this project called USB IP, which let you share a USB device over a network. And a bit of Cat5 cable would work over sort of tens of meters perfectly well, even 100 meters, I think. And then I was looking at it for another reason this weekend, and I discovered that this had been rolled into the kernel. Uh, it, so in a way that you might describe like a file export, you could describe a USB export in a file. You can say this USB device, export it to the network. And on the other end of the bit of IP wire, you would configure the client to say, connect to this USB device over here at this IP address. And it would create a tunnel between the two. And all of the USB interaction happens on the client side. So you, you plug your USB device in. If you need a driver, you put that driver on the client side, not on the server side. So the server is literally just passing through all of the USB traffic backwards and forwards down this IP tunnel. And so, yeah, you can share any USB device over an IP network over the internet even, some of the latency may not be ideal, but it should still work. And I just think that was a, an amazing feature of the kernel that I didn't really know about. Make that dodgy caddy even more unreliable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely want to do this with storage. I think you should use ZFS on that. <laughs> ButterFS, make it really nice. I heard Alan and Jim implode right there. <laughs> <laughs> I could see this being very handy though. As you say, cameras, that's a, a perfect example of uh, how this could be handy and potentially a recording booth as well if you just for your mouse and keyboard for example if you want your computer to be elsewhere and you don't want to buy long usb cables although i've had very good luck with long usb cables if you buy decent ones but then i'm talking three or four meters but if you're talking sort of 10 plus yeah five i think is a max isn't it yeah so yeah i could see this being very handy Failing, you've decided to cheat and put three in this time. So uh, the first one is Sad Servers. This is a bit of a game, which is quite funny. I mean, in fairness, I only need about two of them. But it's a server, in inverted commas, it's a VM, I think, somewhere, that is broken, and you have, like, X minutes to fix it. And it's a bit of a gamification of your server-fixing skills, and I thought it's quite funny and a bit of a laugh. And um, yeah, I tried it and then I ran out of time and forgot about it then for the rest of the week. But I think somebody out there surely will have a bit of crack doing this. All right. Really awful OSS incidents. Yeah. So this is just to highlight all those projects where nobody funds it and it's turned out to be like a horrific hierarchy built on one single person in the arsehole of nowhere who's doing this purely out of like just spite at this point and at any moment could be killed by a rogue sheep and uh how we've you know architected entire massive companies on top of this and uh this is a small history lesson of all the various ones that have happened you know things like uh heartbleed and the like and uh yeah that was quite good it's uh essentially please fund those projects and uh throw your money behind them help them out whatever but uh it's quite it's quite funny 
All right, and a Firefox add-on that looks fucking hilarious. AI to BS. This is the greatest plugin that has ever. I mean, just I'm I'm sending my credit card straight to Mozilla that they would just keep that this plugin would work forever because uh, it converts things such as deep learning, machine learning, and artificial intelligence that are correct and more accurate replacements. So deep learning becomes linear algebra. Machine learning becomes if statements and artificial <laughs> intelligence is BS that doesn't exist yet. So all I can say is best fucking plugin ever. Fuck a bunch of AI. It's all shite. <laughs> it's up there with comment snob. I don't know if comment snob still works, but that replaces comments or it doesn't show you comments if they've got uh, certain things like they don't start with a capital letter or they have a load of exclamation marks in <laughs> oh there. my god <laughs> and it just makes YouTube comments and stuff much better pedantry <laughs> level 5000 activate well I'm going to cheat with my discovery it is nerd dictation and this comes from Campbell Barton who is a friend of the show Blender developer all around good egg and it's quite frankly amazing this demo that he's put on YouTube. It's funny that on YouTube, in the uh, actual screencast, it's Nerd Dictator. He seems to have uh, changed the name slightly, perhaps <laughs> on advice from other people. But uh, so now it's Dictation, and it's fucking amazing how well it works. I don't know how well it's tuned to his Australian accent, though. That is something that I need to test, and unfortunately didn't have time because I only saw this really late last night. But there's a GitHub project for it and a YouTube video, so check it out. It is, uh, it could be really fucking good if it works for other accents as well. And I've got another discovery, and that is that I cannot get my Pinebrook Pro to turn on. It's fucking useless to me now. I don't know what I did to it. I've done all sorts of trying to flash different things onto it, and it is just fucking fucked. And, uh, I hadn't used it for ages anyway. I wanted to give it away. I, I tweeted that I was looking to give it away, and then I thought, right, well, I'd better actually make sure it works first. And uh, yeah, I can't get it to boot. When I plug it in, the charging light comes on. This is USB-C, and it seems to charge. I don't know. When I went to turn it on with the power button, I saw a little flash of the power LED, but then nothing. So my original plan was to find a young person or a person who doesn't have that much money, who's looking to get into ARM development, who could do something useful with it, I suppose that still stands. It, it must be <laughs> You now must also know how to weld. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to sacrifice them. Someone who knows about this shit could probably fix it. I don't know. Uh, but it's no use to me. But I'm not going to send it. I, I just I can't be doing with posting things. They, my local post office is such a nightmare. They're just such dicks in there. That just I can't <laughs> deal with it. So you have to be near enough to London to either come to me in sort of West-ish London um, or I could drive a little bit out, meet you at the services or something on uh, on one of the motorways. But if you're near London and want a fucked Pinebook Pro, then <laughs> hit me up, I suppose. Wow, what a salesman. <laughs> well, you know, you don't get anything for free, do you? And in this case, you do, you get a fucked Pinebook Pro. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide. Traditional endpoint security tools can make your workplace feel like a surveillance state turn users and the IT team into adversaries, and ultimately drive your employees to work on unsecured personal devices. It doesn't have to be this way. Collide is a device security solution built around honest security. Their philosophy is that employees aren't your biggest security risk, they're your biggest allies, and your relationship with them should be based on transparency and informed consent. Collide works by notifying your employees of security issues via Slack, and giving them step-by-step -step instructions on how to resolve them themselves. 
For IT and security teams, Collide provides the right level of visibility for Mac, Windows, and Linux devices. It can answer questions about your fleet's security that traditional MDMs can't. You can meet your security goals without compromising your values. Visit collide.com slash late night Linux to find out how. If you follow that link, they'll hook you up with a goodie bag just for activating a free trial. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash late night Linux. On to a bit of admin then. First of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support. And remember, for $10 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed that includes this show, Linux Downtime, and Linux After Dark. And occasionally, you'll get episodes earlier than the main public feed. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can email show at latenightlinux.com. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash latenightlinux, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com slash late night Linux, create a free account, and you'll get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash late night Linux. Right, so as teased, Graham, you are at the Ubuntu Summit at the moment, and you had a chat with Ken Van Dyne, who is the director of desktop. That seems like a familiar role, Will, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I don't know. Does it? Yeah, yeah. I think I know somebody who used to... Yeah, did you do it for a year yeah, or two, maybe, perhaps? maybe. I'm sure Martin, somebody did it, I think. Yeah, yeah. So the, the latest victim, anyway. You had a chat with him recently, Graham. So let's have a listen to that now. I'm here at the Ubuntu Summit with Ken Van Dyne, who leads up all the um, Ubuntu development work on the desktop team and lots of other things besides. I'm here, I thought it'd be a great opportunity to catch up with the work that he's doing and the team's doing to make the desktop such a great experience. Um, so hi, Ken. Hey, hello, everybody. Um, so I think a lot of people know your general responsibilities, but maybe you could talk us through what your, your day-to-day life might be like, or, or why is the Ubuntu desktop so still valid? You yeah. know, is it still part of the equation? Sure. Um, well, Ubuntu desktop is a, a very important um, product for Canonical. And more, more so than just for Canonical, it's important for the Ubuntu community. Uh, it's really kind of the face of Ubuntu. It's what most users interact with. Um, so there's a lot of value in continuing to invest in that space. Um, there's a lot of things that we're responsible for with Ubuntu Desktop. You know, it's, it's a lot more than just your GNOME experience of Ubuntu. Um, you know, we look after things like, you know, enterprise desktop integration, Windows subsystem for Linux integration, the developer experience. If you're developing applications for Ubuntu or on Ubuntu, uh, we do a lot of work to make those sorts of things happen. And more, more recently, we've started investing in the gaming experience. So we have a dedicated team to that as well. With things like WSL kind of coming out of the blue, how did you kind of get on board with understanding how it works enough to understand what people are going to need right 
running Ubuntu on Windows? I think really just the excitement, right? Um, obviously, we were very excited to see that you'd have the ability to do this sort of thing where you could run Ubuntu on Windows. It's really all about that developer experience, which is something we focus a lot about on Ubuntu Desktop, is how do we bring that developer experience to the developers? Um, many developers run Linux because it's more friendly for their development environments. Um, having access to Ubuntu and WSL opens that up to users that have needs to be on Windows. I would love them all to switch to Ubuntu, of course, but there are valid needs for users to be on Windows sometimes. Sometimes there's corporate restraints, uh, things like that. Um, but this gives them the ability to run Ubuntu properly um, in their environment and do their development just like they were on a native Ubuntu machine. Um, so I think the potential is amazing there, and we're seeing a huge uptick in usage there. It's great. Phelan didn't ask me to ask you this, but I'm going to do it on his behalf. Do you, do you think people using um, WSL may be more tempted to use native Linux in the end? Or do you think it's fine that they're just using it wherever they are? Um, I think it's fine that they're using it wherever they are. Um, however, I, you know, I can't imagine somebody who has been in a Windows-only world for a long time getting comfortable using the command line inside of a WSL container learning their way around, the Git commands are comfortable, you know, their bash history, all those sorts of things, and then wanting to take that leap a little bit more um, and actually try Ubuntu on, on a dedicated machine. I could definitely see where that could happen, but really more than anything, it's just, I love that it's opening up uh, Ubuntu to a much broader audience. I wanted to talk a little bit about snaps um, because your team is responsible for some of the biggest snaps and doing a lot of the work for snaps on the desktop. I know how much engineering effort went into maintaining some of the packages in the pre-SNAP world. And I wondered if there's anything you could say about how SNAP's made it easier for developers to, I mean, we've got, Canonical's got 10 years of support in some instances, and I can only imagine how much of a nightmare that must be if you're maintaining different package sets with different architectures across all kinds of different distributions. Snaps alleviate a lot of that burden. Um, you know, in the past, we would have to, like, for example, I'll throw Firefox out there um, as a great example of this. You know, with Firefox, there's continuously, uh, they're continuously releasing new versions. Um, it's clearly something that's got a huge attack uh, vector uh, potential there. Um, and uh, there's Security, it's it's important to get fixes out very quickly, right? Um, and our security team reviews all those uploads. So we do a bunch of work to get each version out there. We do a bunch of testing. The security team has to do all that same work as well. And then they up to upload it as a security, uh, security release. Well, that's not only done for one version of Ubuntu. That's done for every supported version of Ubuntu. And that could potentially be up to 10 years with um, our ESM uh, service. So that's a tremendous amount of work. With a, as a snap, it only needs to be updated in one place. Um, and to top it off, makes it even uh, even easier, is Mozilla is actually, actually owns that snap and they release it directly to the snap store. Um, so it's kind of, I mean, we, we have um, uh, a level of responsibility there to our users to ensure the usability for our users. But it's sort of taking the middleman out there where Mozilla is able to deliver this great thing directly to the users with very little interaction from us, if necessary. Um, we do get involved and we push some fixes there. We also make sure security is being addressed and those sorts of things with Firefox. But uh, what we're going to start seeing is the long tail of support starting to fade off when not needing to maintain 
X number of distro versions for Firefox for X number of architectures, like building it for S390 on Bionic is not all that interesting, but we have to do it uh, because we support Firefox as a deb on Bionic. And we're going to do that for 10 years from 1804. Um, so now that we're shipping that as a snap, we can start to tail that off a little bit. And over time, our, our maintenance burden will go down. And the same is true for any other um, package that we transition. Um, Chromium was a, it was a huge deal for us when we switched Chromium to be um, snap only because Chromium had the exact same um, sort of cadence that we had to keep up with. Uh, and we're seeing just, you know, we can we can focus on much other, much more interesting things now as opposed to just looking after those packages on a whole bunch of different releases. Do you think we'll see better snap desktop integration with um, the Ubuntu desktop? I mean, by that, I mean, I personally love to see a kind of interfaces or connections manager or something that now that we have like refresh appleware something yeah. that lets you see when something's being held for example yeah so i mean we've been working for a long time on improving uh, desktop integration it can be slow moving i will say that uh, and i understand some users you know frustrations that things take a little while to get addressed um, however the snap d code base is extremely complex and it has to be bulletproof right like we have real devices out in the field um, IoT devices, not just desktop devices, um, that we have to make sure we're not breaking things for. So as we're we're working on these sorts of things um, that touch SnapD, you know, we have to be ultra cautious that we're not breaking anything, and the code has to be bulletproof, has to be very well tested. We go through a um, uh, very extensive review process for that stuff, and we're really starting to see the benefits now. And you know, we've actually been seeing a real nice. Um, a shift in the tides there on places like Reddit and things like that, where we've been getting more and more positive feedback, which has been great to see um, in our Snap integration. Yeah, Refresh awareness, I think, in particular, is a really great area to focus on. Um, the current experience with the notification that people get is not is far from ideal, uh, but it does make your desktop snaps more stable, that they don't get refreshed under the covers while you're running it. Um, so it is better... But we're doing some work right now to make that prompting um, better. So you'll be able to just click a button. It'll uh, re basically restart your browser in the new version without having um, any other sort of interaction. Um, changing the subject slightly, um, I also wanted to ask, I, you've said before that really you just want, um, for most people, Ubuntu to just work. And so the choices that you make are based on that kind of usability. How do you decide on what, to make different to GNOME 42, for example, in terms of is, is there a kind of um, interface guidelines that you guys work to or some kind of usability that you have that's, that slightly changes things from the way that GNOME might make decisions on hot corners or whatever it might happen to be? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, Ubuntu has always been uh, Linux for human beings, right? Um, we, we make tough choices sometimes to ensure we're always doing what we feel is the best for the maximum number of users. Sometimes it's design decisions, it's deciding to keep that dock on the left side when upstream GNOME doesn't do that. Um, you know, we did a lot of user research there um, to learn, you know, what what's best for most users. You know, being able to launch applications with a single click, not having to 
open the activities pane, find your app and click on it there. Um, there's a lot of user research behind that. And we do have a user research team that does this sort of work for us. So we make these decisions based on what is going to have the biggest impact for the broadest number of users. Obviously, it's not the best choice for every user, but we try to always take into account what's going to have the biggest impact for the largest number of users. And the same thing is true when we're working on technical, more technical things, not just design related stuff. You know, if we're looking at two different bugs um, and we're trying to figure out which ones to prioritize, we're going to we're going to fix the bug that affects the, the largest number of users first, even if it's more work. Because really, that's what's most important is make, making sure that as many users as possible have a seamless user experience and can get their work done on Ubuntu desktop. Do you think any of that will change with the addition of Ubuntu Pro and perhaps more demands from enterprise customers to take your time or your team's time to do things that they want to see? No, I really don't think so. Um, I think this is going to improve things for everybody. Um, one thing to remember, everybody can have access to five instances of Ubuntu Pro themselves for personal use. So everybody can benefit from everything Pro brings you. Um, but really, you know, um, the average personal user of Ubuntu desktop is going to be using a very recent release of Ubuntu anyway. They're not going to be using older releases. Um, so you're going to continue to see us developing on those newer releases because we are always going to be landing fixes there and then backporting them um, uh, first. So I, I don't think people are going to see any sort of a slowdown in getting their improvements and fixes from us. It's also been really good to see the Steam Snap make an appearance. I think it's still beta, it's still kind of testing, but even in the time that I've been tracking it and trying it, it's vastly improved in terms of performance and everything. How did that come about? Was it, is it, Steam is always notoriously difficult to update, and there, there is a PPA, but then you've got to worry about all kinds of dependencies. And I mean, you were just telling me before that um, you're really pleased that you've been able to get the, the latest Mesolibs into the new Steam. And, you know, this is something you never know. You install it once, play a game in another six weeks, and everything's changed. Yeah, exactly. And, and the the reason why we're really excited to work on this was it's, it's the same thing, um, improving that user experience for the maximum mm. number of users. And obviously, Linux gamers, we love Linux gamers. Um most of the Linux gamers out there are relying on Steam. Steam is a great vehicle to get your games. Um, there's obviously with the Steam Deck been a huge uptick in games supported on Linux. Proton support is much, much better. Um, it was really a great time to kind of dive in and look at how we can deliver this better. Most Linux gamers, the first thing they do is they find some uh, forum posts on uh, Valve's website or an Ask Ubuntu post or something that asks them to enable a PPA so they can get newer versions of libraries. Um, and then they potentially expose their entire host system to unstable code. Like, mm. I mean, if there's this Oiboth PPA, which is great, it's been around forever, tons of people use it, but it's like super bleeding edge versions of Mesa. Um, you don't need your entire desktop experience to potentially break one day because of a rebuild in that in that PPA. Um, we're able to, thanks to uh, the Snap technology, be able to deliver that in just the Steam Snap. So it may make your Steam experience unstable, briefly until it gets fixed, but it doesn't actually break your system. And this can deliver the newest drivers, user space drivers and things like that. Um, so you get that best experience that you that that you would like to get. And we've really been very pleased with, uh, and we're still calling it early access because 
there's still rough edges in the Steam Snap, um, but there's actually a ton of people using it and we're getting a lot of really good feedback. There's still plenty of games that don't work, but we're working on those things. Um, I think overall it's going to it's going to really show the power of snaps that you can do this sort of thing. And um, something we're working on right now, which is really exciting, is we've moved the Mesa libraries out to a content snap. So it's not actually bundled as part of Steam. Um, and then you can choose how um, how new you want. So you can choose Oiboff, Kissack Fresh, or Kissack Turtle, and um, as different snap. And those are the names of the builds <laughs> on Launchpad that people use. They're very common. People will recognize those. So we're following that same naming schema. So when people are looking for those things, they know what to choose. You can just choose which track you want to get your Mesa from, um, and without touching Steam, and Steam will get the version that you want. So you can choose that latest bleeding edge version, or maybe just the latest stable that's still newer than what Ubuntu is shipping. Um, or if you're on Fedora or Debian and you're using the Snap, the same thing applies. You will get that version um, and without making your system unstable. And I think there's a lot of power to that. Thanks, Ken. I've just got one last question, actually. There's been lots of job postings for desktop roles. And it seems obvious that the desktop team is expanding and taking on new challenges. Can you talk a little bit about what might have driven this change? Um, is it a, a, a renewed vigor at Canonical to make the Ubuntu desktop great again? Um, sure. Um, I, I, I don't want to say we're, um, uh, we've got a new, a new vision for the desktop or anything like that. Desktop's always been important to Canonical. Um, it's an, an important vehicle for people to get Ubuntu. Um, and there are a lot of users and we've always invested in that, uh, but we haven't really grown a lot. We've always kind of used, just kind of kept things rolling with the same size team. Um, you know, we're looking to do more and like, for example, investing in the gaming experience. We've been expanding doing WSL stuff, more enterprise uh, features for enterprise customers. Um, we have, you know, broader reach. And as that reach is growing, we needed we need more people to work on it. So um, I am very happy to say the desktop team is larger than it has ever been. Um, we have probably nearly doubled in the past year in size, which is fantastic. Um, and we're expecting to continue to grow the team um, because we're doing even more exciting things and we are looking to do even more. So you're hiring. So yes, we are hiring. Anybody listening to this wants to their dream job working on the Linux desktop. <laughs> oh, well, thanks very much for your time, Ken. I know you're incredibly busy, so um, I appreciate it. We all really appreciate it, and uh, hope you have a great. It's great being back at an Ubuntu summit. Oh my goodness, yes! I am so excited about the Ubuntu summit. I went to many UDSs back in the day, and I have missed this experience so much. Um, so looking forward to meeting everybody at the welcome reception tonight. It's going to be fantastic. Brilliant. Thanks, Ken. Thank you. Well, thank you for that, Graham. That was uh, really interesting to listen to. If a little bit, uh, you know, all on the same team. <laughs> yeah, I must admit, I feel a bit uncomfortable about it, having done things like that before working at Canonical and then to be at Canonical. And I th thought it was a good idea, but then as an employee, it was a bit awkward. So yeah, I apologize if it sounds a little bit shilly. How many lights did you see? <laughs> <laughs> you did ask some probing questions. So it wasn't a complete fluff piece. So, you know, fair play to you for that. And I think that Ken was, um, you know, reasonably obliging and reasonably open there with it. So, uh, you know, I'm sure I would have asked some much more dickheadish questions, but, you know, then I wouldn't get invited back, would I? 
They did invite me, incidentally. They would have paid for it all as well. So if you hear people who are there who are in the media, they got their fucking tickets paid for. So, uh, but I just like, I'm not traveling in winter, man, and I've got a business to run and I can't be getting ill and all the rest of it. So uh, I didn't go. But uh, I do have a bit of FOMO. And uh, it's weird. This will come out by the time it's all over, Graham. And uh, I don't know. I, I do kind of wish I was there hanging out with you lot, but... I really think Canonical's going to do this again. Um, it seems to me like we're rebooting the whole idea in this Ubuntu Summit idea. And so it'll happen next year, you know, and I'm sure you'll be invited and maybe you'll feel a bit differently then. We'll see. If it's in summer, maybe. Do it in London in summer so I can walk there. <laughs> right, well, we better get out of here then. We'll be back in a couple of weeks when we'll probably be talking about the news, but who knows. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Salem. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later.